So we promised to bring you more conversation about civics and engagement. And today we get to bring you a real talk episode about one of our favorite topics, or rather sort of three of them together, right? Civics, engagement, and a white woman's work. Plus, as a special bonus, we do this in conversation with New York Times bestselling author Kate Schatz, a white queer woman who is, in our estimation, basically the perfect human being to tackle these topics with. Totally agree. I mean, we talk about what she'd say to white women if she could say absolutely anything, the interconnectedness of oppression, but also how to avoid devolving into the oppression Olympics, things like how to figure out what to ask fellow white people about racism instead of asking people of color, and also how white women can channel a little more bravery once they know what's really at risk, which is basically tied into that mic drop moment when she references Trevor Noah. Really importantly, the folks and civic organizations who are actually making huge differences that we can each get behind, those are things that we talk about as well. So consider this your DWW ease in to our civics focus. Any way you think of this, you should listen and then get all your friends to do the same as we kick off 2023. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast, the show that helps white women use their privilege to uproot systemic racism without centering themselves in the process. We are your biracial Japanese and white hosts, Sarah and me, Sasha. We're recording this episode coming off the heels of a highly contentious and emotional midterm season, for lack of a better word, and where things went, and I'm almost afraid to say this better than expected um, jinx it. because honestly i mean but expectations were basically in the garbage like yeah, after the these so low. past few years right no expectations yet you know i keep thinking about the moment where we saw the numbers coming out of georgia and sort of the racial breakdown of who was voting for who and there were white women again right not voting for stacy abrams voting for brian kemp and so I'd love to start with what would you say to white women if you could get really real and honest with them about this? Because, you know, Sarah and I were just in a conversation yesterday where we were talking about, again, the numbers of white women who had not been voting Democratic or had been voting for Trump, right, in 2016 and 2020. So what would you say about this and to white women about, you know, this or really anything else? That's a really good question. And I think it depends on what I'm trying to get out of that conversation I'm having with those women. So am I just like, what do I really want to say? <laughs> or what do I want to say if I'm hoping to have something productive come of the conversation? Because what I really want to say is totally inappropriate and not at all productive and a little bit destructive. <laughs> and violent. <laughs> but I think if I were to be in a position of having you know, a potentially productive conversation and one that comes from a place of genuine curiosity and attempt at connection. I would have that conversation. I would lead with questions, I guess. I would actually, and this is just a like a kind of larger thing about, I think, how to kind of model, how do you have those hard conversations? If I was suddenly in a room with four women, white women from Georgia who all voted for Brian Kemp, and I had and we were all in a good mood and it was like, wow, we're going to have this conversation. I would ask questions and I would actually try to understand their motives and their motivations before I attempted to convince them otherwise. <laughs> because that, And that's actually a genuine curiosity on my part because I don't know. I can have, as a white woman who's lived in California almost her entire life in a very progressive, liberal area and communities, and I don't have a lot of personal access to 
white women who are voting this way in other states, um, I have a lot of genuine curiosity. And I also have a lot of assumptions. and I have a lot of like theories and I have a lot of intellectual ideas about why those women are voting the way that they are. They might bear out in that conversation. But all that is to say, I would start with asking questions and hopefully would get to a place where I could kind of turn some of those questions around and and ask them, what is it that they they care about? What do they think they're getting from these men that they continue to vote for? And also, what do they think that they won't get from someone like Stacey Abrams? And maybe that's also a compelling question. Because you can ask, what are you going to get from Brian Kemp? And I'm sure they'll, you know, likely have like a bunch of lines that they've been fed about the Republican Party. But the flip side is, what are you afraid that you won't get from someone like Stacey Abrams? What do you think that she will not do? you. Um, And maybe that line of questioning could lead to unpacking some of the fears that I think are at the core of this voting pattern. Again, I don't know because I'm not in those conversations, but I do. My intellectual theories are that it's a lot of fear. I love that approach. And to think about asking the question in both of those ways. I think in some of our talks, especially recently with white women, we've been discussing how almost all forms of oppression are interconnected. And a lot of times we're seeing fear driving these like, we must not talk about the gay parents. We must not talk about the transgender children. And it's so many of these forms of oppression are, though, at the end of the day, pitted against this rich white male hierarchy who founded the country and who it's still made for. You know, I think by default, being a woman, for example, I feel like you can relate sort of to this feeling of being judged or maybe harmed based on how you look. And I think The way I think about it is that that can help women understand a little bit more about what it feels like to experience racism, for example, right? And you talk about pretty openly about being a queer white woman. Can we have a conversation here about how you have maybe in your life experienced some of that oppression and, and how those feelings might help folks understand that we need to come back to dismantling these bigger structures of supremacy as opposed to turning on each other and playing the oppression Olympics? Yeah, of course. And it's Oh, it's one of those mm, super complicated, nuanced things, right? Because there's absolutely ways that folks who are in a marginalized group of any kind, I do think can have an increased level of like empathy and understanding on a personal level of what it means to be excluded or discriminated against, judged, rejected, etc. So there is a common ground there. But then there's a danger of taking that too far. And we see that so often with people you know, assuming that all of these processes of marginalizations and forms of oppression are on the same level, right? And so we see this is actually, and in terms of the gay community, and, you know, in particular, black community, we've seen a lot of gay white men kind of like, oh, well, I understand what it's like to be discriminated against. And this is where the idea of intersectionality is so important and powerful, right? Because you can be a rich, white, gay man and absolutely have experienced discrimination and abuse and hardship because of your sexuality, but you can also still be benefiting from your whiteness and you are still benefiting from, you know, your position as a cis male, right? All that is to say, our oppressions are absolutely linked, right? And the struggles are linked, the marginalization is linked. But what I have faced as a queer person is nothing like what people of color face. And it's nothing like what, you know, trans people are are facing. I feel like I'm in the same family and same community, but I'm not experiencing the same thing. And that's because of the layers of my own privilege. I was also married to a man for a long time. So I also know and had been out as queer long before that. So I've, I've had the experience of 
you know, I pass as straight like easily. So I'm also, you know, even though I'm with my wife and we can walk down the street holding hands, but when I'm just walking down the street without her, if I, unless I'm wearing like one of my big gay t-shirts or one of my other like lesbian identifiers that I like to wear, no one is going to read me. Most people are not going to read me as queer. Unlike my butch friends, you know, who actually just walking down the street is dangerous for them in some spaces. So, you know, that's, it's something that I'm super aware of, but has it given me like, yeah, a level of empathy to know what it's like to be not the same as what the quote unquote normal people? Absolutely. And I think for me, as someone who is always kind of been obsessively interested in history, that's actually been a big part of, I think, my kind of journey with anti-racist work and anti-oppression work is also really coming to understand the history of the LGBTQ movement and struggle, understanding the history of Black and trans elders who, you know, and the work that they've done in this community, that has been really helpful for me as well. And it's all, I mean, this is the thing, like, it's all absolutely connected. And, you know, right now, the like, it's almost like the kind of the white supremacist underbelly that like fuels the kind of conservative right wing backlash (laughs) machine in this country. You know, it's like they're constantly cycling through like, which marginalized group are we all going to like, try to destroy like this month or year it's like a flavor of the week and like and i that's a really dismissive thing to say because it's like you know i'm not trying to make light of it at all but like how they landed on like trans kids and drag queens and jews right now like that's kind of where we're at we're at this sudden like i mean these things are always present anti-semitism is like woven into the thread right this kind of like anti-queer stuff but like suddenly they're all obsessed with drag queens suddenly we're seeing this rise in anti-semitism suddenly we're seeing these these like bills against trans children and it's like then they all kind of swarm together like these things all these struggles are absolutely connected they're not the same um, but they are inextricably linked Yes, absolutely. They are. Because it is like you say, it's all these forces are there. But what is it today? What is it this month that people are going to focus on? And then when people are tired of that, they'll go on to the next thing. But all of these will come back around like history repeats itself. So we have to come back to that. You know, you mentioned, though, you have certain privileges compared to queer folks of color. And when it comes to things like racism, right, there are times where I think society can sometimes or people can sort of want the answers from their black friends about racism when black people are kind of like, look, I'm not the spokesperson and I'm tired of this. I'm tired of talking about it. So what questions do you think you, for example, or another white friend is better to ask a white friend as opposed to a person of color about racism? I think, you know, in our platform, we keep being like, go do the research yourself. Google is an option. But I feel like sometimes people need to talk to folks. Mm. That's such a good question. I mean, I think it's entirely dependent on the relationship that you have with the person, you know, and I think that I guess I like there's like this optimistic part of me that would guess hope that people would know what's an appropriate question to ask and like what is not because you understand the relationship that you have with this person. You know, I think on the whole, I actually I think a thing that I push for and want to model and want people to think about more for white people is that I want white people to ask other white people about race and racism more, like in general. I'm not campaigning for white people to completely stop trying to talk to their friends of color about it by any means, but I want them to talk to other white people more. Um, I want us to normalize concern for racialized violence 
and rising white supremacy. I want us to normalize that being a thing that white people talk about amongst themselves, that it's not just something that we, you know, text your black friend to say, oh, I saw this in the news. Like, how do you feel about it? And then you go to brunch with all your white friends and nobody talks about it the entire time. Like, that's like a larger systemic problem in the conversations that we do and don't have, you know? And I think when it comes to, here's maybe a way to think about it. When it comes to asking or talking to people of color in your life about what's going on in the world or how they're feeling about it. I actually really think that it's less about the kind of question and more about how you ask it and how you approach. Because I think that especially when we're, if we're talking about like, say there's like another horrific thing in the news, like some white supremacist act of violence, a new study that's come out, you know, some big thing that people are talking about. Are you going to that person because you're concerned about them and you're coming from a place of wanting to check in and just acknowledge, like, see them and acknowledge, like, how they're feeling? Or are you going because you want something for yourself, right? I think it's very often transactional or self-serving, right? It's like, I want to understand, so can you help me? Rather than, I see you and this must be so intense for you. Like, I just want to check in and see if you're okay, right? And I think that when you approach with that, the latter, like, genuine concern, you're way more likely to then engage in a conversation and make the connection that I think is really important. I was doing a a talk recently to a bunch of parents at my daughter's school and someone in the audience who lives in a very predominantly white, wealthy neighborhood and community shared that there had recently been racist graffiti on an elementary school in the neighborhood. And in the ensuing conversations about it, a Black family had expressed disappointment and hurt that so few people had reached out to them in the wake of that, that no, you know, no, they had felt really hurt and nobody had checked in on them. And so this audience member, again, coming with good intentions for sure, was kind of in this like, I don't know, what do I do now? Is it too late to say something to them? You know, what do I do next time? And I was like, you know, I understand where she's coming from. She wants to do the right thing. And I said, you know, I think I want you to understand that the problem is Like, I just want to say that this is likely not the first time that that family hasn't felt seen in the community. It's not like this one thing, right? And so what really matters is like, how are you showing up for them and letting them feel seen and feel making connections with them on the days when something horrible hasn't happened? (laughs) You know, not just on the days when there's a trauma, but on like Wednesday, you know, when you see them at pickup, like, are you saying hello? Are you acknowledging their humanity? Like, so often, I think, white people, like when we just come out of the woodwork, when there's a trauma and a tragedy, that feels tokenizing. So if you are engaging in, and, 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 you know, I mean, there's a parallel. It's funny, my, I brought this up recently in connection with kind of LGBTQ stuff and how in the wake of the Colorado Springs massacre recently, my partner, she got like 10 people at work emailing her in the wake of it saying, you know, I'm so sorry. I hope you're okay. Like, this is so disgusting. And she works in a really corporate environment. And that actually was very moving for her. Like she was, cause she wasn't out at work for a long time. And so this felt very like, wow, like, okay, people are acknowledging this. It's a little clunky and awkward, but that's cool. And then another lesbian friend of mine, which is like, oh, I'm so sick of this shit. Like nobody talks about it until something terrible happens. And this friend is also Jewish. And she's like, look, nobody gives a shit that I'm Jewish until there's like, you know, Kanye says something on Twitter and then suddenly everybody wants to talk to me. But like nobody comes to my Hanukkah party kind of thing. So that's a really long way of saying that we have to reframe. Like it's not like a problem to ask a question, but it's contingent on the context and the relationship that you've been building with that person. 
I appreciate that because I think you're right. It is really nuanced. And I especially like the part about, you know, just checking in with families when it's a Wednesday, right? Because as someone who is in a very mixed race, you know, relationship and has, you know, black boys, for example, I feel like I get the most texts. And this is another issue of mine, which contain links to some terrible story about black children being, you know, murdered, hurt, bullied at school, like a news article, right? And then like, oh, you know, just, you know, saw this and like, hope you, you know, you're okay or whatever. And I have so many reactions to that because I'm like, A, I don't need another story of violence against black kids because like, that's what I think about all day long. And B, like, I would love to have a text like, oh, how's things going? Like, you know, is the school year going as well for you as it is for us, which is a dumpster fire kind of thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I really appreciate that. And I understand that, like, you know, when we talk about this a lot on the podcast, like intent and impact are two different things, right? And so what is that impact? And that's what I always struggle to think about, right? It's what's the impact Mm going to be? What's that impact rather than my intent, in reaching out in that moment, because I've definitely made mistakes on that front too. And I think that this is part of this journey, right? And this constant recalibration that we do internally and then externally. I want to switch gears for a second, because this next question is something that Sarah and I have been asked about, have talked about, have seen debates on LinkedIn about, you know, and it's over the term Karen, right? Uh And especially, (laughs) you know, so I'm so curious, what do you think about the whole Karen name, right? Or, you know, I heard now that Kristen is the new Karen since Kristen Cinema had to basically like grab the spotlight away from, you know, the Georgia runoffs and like Raphael Warnock's like one big moment and then be like, yo, everyone, I'm an independent. I've left the Democratic Party. And there, (laughs) and I saw so many sort of memes about like, this white woman can't even just let this one thing go by. It's got to be like recentering white women. So, so curious to hear your thoughts about this. I'm making that like emoji face of the one where you're like, like, am I going to say? <laughs> yeah. I don't give a shit about the feelings of people who are named Karen. And I think that people need to get over it. If your name is Karen and you're white and you're not a shitty person, then great. Just keep being not a shitty person and get over it. Own it. Have a sense of humor and move on. And some people are going to hear that and be very, I'm sure, very upset. I just feel like in the spectrum of things to get really upset about. And like, you know, I just think that that's just not high on my list of things to worry about. I think there's a weird way that that the like Karen meme, I think as all kind of like phrases and memes kind of filtered down and then get diluted because my kids talk about Karens a lot. And now for them, like my son will be like, oh my God, she's such a Karen. Like what a Karen move. I, you know what, like, I'm sorry, everybody named Karen, like, I'm sure that it sucks. If it was a Kate, like, ugh, I'd be sick of it. But like, again, have a sense of humor, do your best to not be a Karen, like leverage that on your, you know, but like, I actually think there's something great about my kids having a term to describe and understand and articulate, like a self-centered, self-serving type of white woman. Like, this is like, they understand, like, they'll see someone, you know, they were with their grandma at a restaurant, and there was an incredible incredibly white woman being incredibly rude to a, a server and just being terrible. And my kids were like, oh my God, that woman is such a Karen. That's so not okay. So like, is it problematic? Sure. Like, oh, I don't know. Yeah. That's about all the energy I can spend on that one. You know what I also, but like, 
I also think it's really problematic that we keep naming our digital servants after women. Like, I think, frankly, that like Siri and Alexa are ultimately more problematic than Karen, because it's reinforcing this idea that we should just have women doing stuff and we should order women around all the time. We should call him Chad and Bush. Right? I mean, I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm like, good with that. Mm-hmm. Call it Carl, Craig, whatever, Mike, you know? Bel- so yeah. again, I say that I'm being kind of flippant because I'm just like, oh my God, like, get. I just think one of my core messages or core things for white women is just like, we've got to get over ourselves. I just have limited patience for the endless hand wringing and just like it's like i'm so done with it so it's like the way that i just i have that i'm like that with my kids sometimes i'm like i have no more capacity for this like incredibly minute thing that you're freaking out about um and i feel the same about karen and also it'll pass they'll be fine but one thing i will say something happened at school and i had to talk to the school administrators about it and my kids were milling about being like oh mom's gonna go karen on her and i kind of had to be like time out advocating for what you need like it's the same way that i think a lot of kids coming up now are quick to be like oh that's racist or oh that's whatever i want to make sure we are taking the time though to differentiate what you just said it's someone acting in a self-serving self-promoting way as opposed to naming anybody who goes back and pushes against authority or who doesn't get their way or whatever i think it's important for adults to continue to teach the kids the nuances of the words and the phrases that they're using because they have the potential to misunderstand and be applied to everything. Yeah. And so that, again, it becomes this like, it is a really good learning moment. And I push back completely when my kids are using it because they're not using it correctly. (laughs) Not because I feel bad for someone named Karen, but because I'll be like, ah, 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 no, that is not what a Karen is. No. (laughs) And like, I'll suggest they use another term, but again, I think the Karens of the world, I think will be okay. Actually, I saw a my son's fifth grade class had their like Halloween parade and there was a girl who was dressed as a Karen. And I was like, wow, I didn't even know. And she had this, she was holding a cell phone and on the back of her shirt, it said Karen, like she had done this with tape, right? Like Karen. And on the front, it said, can I speak to your manager? And I was like, this is epic because this was not what I was expecting because I've seen some questionable costumes at times. And I was like, is everyone seeing this? And I was standing with, you know, my husband who's black and a family that's also mixed race, Indian and white. And we were just like, she Karen? It might have been one of my all-time favorite moments of Halloween. All right. So again, I'm going to switch topics a little bit. And I want to talk about, because we have circles of friends, right? All of us. And especially doing the work or what we talk about and think about a lot. I recognize at the same time, they're within our circles of friends and especially white friends, right? There are people who seem to get it and there are people who don't, right? And I say that based on just like the reactions I've had when I say certain things or when I I can see it in people's faces and how, you know, or the questions they'll ask or what they won't say. And I'm sure that's the same for you too, you know, and what ways do you try and reach out and, you know, like shake up, you know, I guess, or change the narrative for those who aren't getting it? I think what I've always kind of done, and I don't know that I've been like, I don't even know that I think about it that much. Like, I don't even think like consciously, like today I'm going to do this. When it comes to that particular thing of like shaking it up and like being like in communities where like maybe people don't get it. I just try to make my 
belief. I've always been very into just being as visible as possible. Like I'm a big t-shirt wearer and like bumper sticker haver and hat wearer, right? Like I like to signify and signal my politics and my beliefs and also just normalize the way that I talk about it. And like, just to kind of like weave it into who I am so that people who know me or who are in conversation with me, even if we're not having a conversation about indigenous land theft, I'm wearing a hat to the kids soccer game that says you are on native land. And like, sometimes people comment, I'm wearing a hat that says abortion is healthcare to like pediatrician's office. Like, and that's not something that everybody's comfortable with by any means. But I think that has always been one of my tactics. Like since I was in high school, that was kind of my way because we can't always be having those conversations. Most people are not interested and comfortable with constantly being in dialogue about quote unquote hard things. And so I guess one of my workarounds has always been like, that's fine if you're not going to talk about it, but like I'm wearing this really intense t-shirt and I know you see it. And you know what, maybe you don't ask me about it, but like, I know that you've seen it. And now I know that you're thinking about it. So that's been one of my kind of strategies. And that's, you know, again, it's one of my privileges that like, I live in an area where I feel safe doing that. I can have signs on my lawn. I can have, you know, again, stickers on my car, buttons on my bag. And I, I try to, I'm like very conscious. It's like accessorizing. Like if I'm wearing a hat, I'm like not wearing a t-shirt. Um, if I've got a button, then I'm probably not doing the hat. Like I don't want to be too like necklace and earrings and bracelet. It's like one <laughs> call to action, right? Like <laughs> just one thing, you know, and I just, I do that consistently. Like, and I'm strategic. Sometimes I'm very strategic. If I'm flying on a plane to Texas to go see my wife's mom, I'm wearing an abortion t-shirt and I'm taking my jacket off on the plane and I know everybody sees it. And again, most people don't say anything. Sometimes I get like, a, oh, I like your hat. And then we have a conversation. That's one way. Another strategy that I think of, or I kind of talk about when it is about like groups of friends is just thinking about ways that you can engage folks in like new and unexpected ways, things that are maybe not like we need to have a serious conversation, you know, but like going to see a movie with friends and it being like, you know, going to see Till, going to see The Woman King, going to see Black Panther with your white friends and like having conversations about it afterward, you know, going to see like a dance performance from like an all black ballet company and like maybe not even talking about it, but like as a like finding ways to bring some, I'm, you know, I'm so conflicted about the word diversity, but some like some diversity into your friend group and like then you have like, you know, you don't want to necessarily be like cultural tourists and like all like going to East Oakland to like a taqueria for like an authentic experience. But like, what are ways that you could kind of mix it up in ways that like open up the potential to have some conversations that aren't like, you know, let's have a serious talk. And I often think about this in relation to parenting. Those of us who have kids, especially slightly older kids, you know that the best conversations that you're going to have about sex are not the like, you need to sit down. We're going to have a conversation. Things are going to happen to your body and you're going to have feelings like every kid is going to run from the room. Right. So like the conversations that I've had with my kids about sex, like have been kind of organic, like in the car when I don't really expect it, or, you know, when one of them is a little distracted or something comes up on TV and like, I'm like, Hmm, like, what do you think about that? Right. Like, when we always think about it, like we need to have this big, intense conversation, that's that's a lot harder. And I think finding small ways, you know, even if it's just like a little quick thing, 
at least like the ball is rolling and the conversation is is happening. I like that. And I really appreciate you also saying this idea about safety, because I wore a shirt that said phenomenally Asian. Mm-hmm. And there was a photo thing. We're going on a hike in Boulder. And my mom saw it and was like, why are you doing that? People know that you're Asian and they could come and hurt you. Like that instilled fear for my mom and was like, don't do it. But it is true. You do want to always make sure that you feel safe. But I do think that there is a tendency for a lot of white people to feel unsafe when it's actually just they're a little uncomfortable. And so we have to get better at differentiating between those things. And that said, looking at the statistics, especially in the Midwest and why white women are voting the way they are, so many people are like, well, it's because, you know, they're engaged in the church. You know, the church is saying that they don't have any social safety nets. They have their husbands who do not agree with more liberal policies. And so they have to vote with their husbands. I feel like there needs to be some sort of system of safety, of community in this country for more white women to start opening their eyes and actually doing something different to stand up for freedom or, you know, putting their foot down saying, no, this oppression doesn't work for me. So have you thought about things like that? Like what structures or systems do you think might be helpful for us to all get behind so that more white people can actually feel air quotes safer? Well, I think one thing you're talking about is like movements, right? I think that's why so many white women loved the Women's March, because there were so many other people there. (laughs) And what we're talking about is risk, right? And I think that there are, this is something I've been thinking about, you know, the risks that white women can take, right? Like, because so often the anxieties that we have are about these risks we might take. Like, what are we risking if we're wearing a t-shirt? What are we risking if we're wearing a hat? Um, So often it's social it's like a social and emotional risk. Like someone might be mad at you. Someone might not like your hat. Someone might say a mean thing. And I, to be really fair, there are absolutely places right now, especially in this country where the risk is greater. There, you know, like for sure. But in a lot of communities and, you know, in a lot of spaces, the risk is mostly like maybe someone wouldn't talk to you or even worse, they might talk about you, right? Behind your back. That is like a huge driver of like white women's social anxiety. The fact that you would be cast out and that you would be, you know, not accepted that the other moms would talk about you. That's just like such a mild risk. And when I talk about getting over ourselves, like I thought, you know, so a thing I've been thinking about a lot this week is um, I think is the Trevor Noah's talk that he gave at the end of the Daily Show, which I've seen so many people sharing online. If people haven't heard it, the wonderful Trevor Noah, who's moving on from The Daily Show, gives a kind of closing, very emotional um, speech. And in it, he's very specifically takes the time to thank Black women and to talk about what he's learned from Black women during his career. Really specifically, what he says is he talks about how Black women cannot afford to fuck around and find out. And he says it a few times. And I'm going to just keep echoing that because that's the thing. I can afford to fuck around and find out. I can afford the level of privilege I have with my white skin, with my pretty nice white face, where I live, et cetera. I can risk wearing a t-shirt and fucking around and trying that and then finding out like someone might be mad, right? I also have been following, I've noticed this week in particular, a couple of the black feminist thinkers that I follow online, specifically Brittany Cooper, who's Professor Crunk online and Nicole Hannah-Jones have both been posting this week screenshots of the hate mail and emails that they get on a regular basis. The most hateful, violent, death threat, N-word laden attacks for things that they've said. Brittany Cooper had a clip of an interview that she did last year, has been re-edited, taken out of context, and has gone viral in like white supremacist troll channels on a lot of different, on like Reddit and 4chan and all these spaces. 
She's getting death threats like constantly every day. The most disgusting, hateful stuff. That does not happen to me. It doesn't. I mean, again, the worst, like maybe someone will be mad. Maybe someone won't like what I said. But that's when I think about that idea of like fucking around and finding out. I know what happens to people of color who do speak out. And that's to go back to you. Like that, of course, your mom, it makes absolute sense that your mom would be terrified to see you wearing that t-shirt because she knows what can happen to women of color when they fuck around, right? Like that's coming from lived experience. And so that framing for me, I think is really helpful. And I think it is potentially helpful for other people to be, you know, if it's really something like, again, it doesn't have to be wearing a t-shirt. I think there's a lot of other things we could use to kind of stand in for that. Maybe it's like organizing like a parent night at school and showing a film and you're nervous because you think people will be mad and they won't like it and it'll cause controversy. Like, can you get out of your own way and take that risk? You know, can you fuck around and find out in, you know, and see what happens knowing what the actual risk is for so many other people who don't have that option, but are still talking about it, putting work out there, you know, and doing it. That was an excellent mic drop moment. Anything else that we haven't asked that you want to talk about that you think we should talk about? Well, I will say that I think when it comes to intersectionality and what we kind of just talked about a bit ago, I really am. I feel fascinated by the news, the connections in the news cycle of the last like week and a half and two weeks. There was something about for me, the election and the election of Warnock in Georgia, the release of Brittany Griner coming home and the profound, how emotional it was, not just for her to be released, but to see her wife on TV next to Joe Biden being referred to as her wife, seeing this Black woman, this Black lesbian talking about her wife, right? And then for this marriage equality bill to be signed yesterday. And what links that all together to me in part is that the WNBA was critical in electing Warnock in the first place in 2020. Like the reason Warnock won the Senate in 2020 was literally because of the WNBA. I will die on that hill. There were a lot of other people involved for sure, but what they did to change his name recognition, and if people don't know that story, I will briefly potentially bore you with it. But in 2020, during the pandemic, when the WNBA, which is the Women's National Basketball Association, if people do not know, they were playing in the bubble, the Wubble in Florida, total isolation, playing all their games in this like closed system. They were all in there together. And the Atlanta Dream is one of the WNBA teams. They were owned by Kelly Loeffler, a white woman. She was running for Senate. And so she was running in this special runoff against Warnock. She's a white woman, a Republican. The WNBA decided to dedicate their entire season to the memory of Breonna Taylor, and they were wearing Say Her Name t-shirts. They were wearing Black Lives Matter t-shirts when they went out on the court. Kelly Loeffler told them to stop. She told the Atlanta Dream that they had to stop wearing those t-shirts, and they were like, no, fuck you. The WNBA is predominantly Black. It is also predominantly queer. A lot of open lesbians, a lot of open Black lesbians playing. One of my friends, Leigh Clarendon, is the first openly trans player in the league and they were all in there and they were like what can we do to take a stand and so the next game they basically they looked into her realized she's running for senate learned about Raphael Warnock this guy who was polling at eight percent at that time name recognition he was at eight percent they had t-shirts made that said vote Warnock and they all go out on the court the next day wearing these shirts that say vote Warnock it makes headlines it's on ESPN it's all over social media and then 
they embarked on this campaign with him and they were on Zoom calls with him. They dove into that Senate race, got involved. And like months later, and that was in July of 2020, that election was in November. And his like name recognition completely shot up through the charts uh, and they totally won that race. All that is to say that was in 2020. Fast forward to this particular week where we see the eyes again on the WNBA, on these athletes who really were critical in getting him elected in the first place. And then we have this like beautiful kind of normalization of these black lesbians on TV. Now that said, I know there's been a ton of just like stupid, horrible backlash about Griner's release. One of my self-care techniques is I just don't look at any of that. I think that there's a lot of stuff that we don't even need to see or read. Like I'm not a less smart person for not spending my time reading all of the stupid opinions on Twitter, which I'm also just not looking at anymore. That's another story. All that is to say, if we think about who won the Senate, who helped Warnock win in 2020, it was the W, but it was also grassroots organizations like Black Voters Matter, which is based in the South, like Fair Fight, and other organizations like a new Georgia project. And I really think that this time in 2022, it was those organizations that won. It wasn't the DNC, like, you know, and that is like, and I will, this is like one of my things that I will just champion forever is like, that is who you give your money to. And this is a great example. Like you do not need to chip in $5 to Joe because he texted you a million times. (laughs) Don't chip in $5 to the DNC, give your money to the grassroots organizations on the ground in the communities where the voting needs to happen because they're doing transformative work. And to link it back to what we talked about earlier, where we don't just need to check in on people when the tragedy and trauma happens, don't just donate to these organizations right before the election because they're actually doing that work constantly every day in the off cycle as well. So that's my news analysis of the intersectionality of it all. And I love that. And I think for anybody looking for more people to donate to, you can tell I love this book because I've mentioned it now in multiple episodes, but Steve Phillips wrote How We Win the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And in it lists that the level five leaders and the organizations that are actually doing the data-driven long-term like plan work, the unglamorous work to make change yes. in so many states and so many cities around the country. So there are tons of places that we can get behind with our time, money, and energy. I love that um, you not- said unglamorous too, because that like real movement work is not glamorous. It is not very sexy. It's not headline driven. It's often boring. And like you're saying, it's often really data driven, <laughs> kind of some dry toast, but it's super critical for the long game. Totally. Well, thank you so much for sharing this time with us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for continuing to have these conversations. You've just listened to the Dear White Women podcast with your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. Yes, we're on social media. And yes, you can hire us to do talks about our book. But the biggest thing, don't forget to sign up for our newsletter to receive our free materials. Head over to DearWhiteWomen.com to get on the list.